Live streaming is on. Hello, everyone. This is Adam Meister, the Bitcoin Meister, the Disrupt Meister. Welcome to This Week in Bitcoin. Today is Friday the 13th. Yes, it is December the 13th, 2019. Strong hand. Bitcoin is the next Bitcoin. Offended by selling. Conviction. Holders of last resort. All right. We got some hardcore Bitcoiners here today. BTC Benny is coming in from Canada. Jeet is here. And of course, JW Weatherman is in parts unknown. And he he is also here. So I, I am pumped. Hello, my elite friends in the chat. You've been looking forward to this all-star cast for a while. Yesterday, we bought, brought you Trace Mayor. So check out the, the uh, archives, of course. But we're gonna we'll talk a little bit about proof of keys at, as we move on in the show. But uh, the, what I want to bring up first is like some breaking news here that the uh, bottle pay is discontinued now. They, they're they're ending it because of KYC type of uh, threats. Uh, BTC Benny, can you uh, elaborate on this? Yeah. So uh, from what I saw, it just seems like um, there's some new regulations coming to infect, uh, coming into effect in early January in the UK. Um, whoa. Uh, oh, hey, you still got me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Got, okay, cool. Yeah. So, so there would be uh, some regulations coming into effect in early January that would more or less cause them to need to collect an un- uh, undesirable amount of data. Well, any data is undesirable uh, to collect on behalf of their um, customers, users. Uh, so, you know, KYC, AML, they, they need to collect a, a lot of stuff that they just don't want to do. Um, those unfamiliar bottle pay, basically an easy way to tip on uh, via lightning in a custodial manner and then withdraw to a, a non-custodial wallet if you choose. Um, yeah. So rather than, rather than let it happen, they just opted to shut it down and close the doors. Um, it, it is sad to see because it was a, a cool service. Um, I will say that if, if you're still looking for like a, a, a tipping type thing, uh, tipping.me is, is an alternative. It wasn't quite as widely used, but, uh, yeah, something else to check out. It, it is sad to see. Hopefully, BTC Pay server does something with it, or they can open source the code and somebody can pick up the slack. But is the same threat going to happen again? Or is, is, are we going to go through the same situation where the person's scared of uh, KYC? Well, it, it seemed to be you because it's UK, UK. based. Yeah, but okay, so it can't be a UK based one. That, that that's a, that, that. There you go. That, that that's a that for now at least. Uh, but uh, okay, JW, your your thoughts on this. Yeah, so this is similar to what happened with the open node guys, um, where they uh, they're you know doing smaller amounts of transactions, and so a lot of us thought, oh, okay, they're going to be able to get away with not having to do you know KYC, AML, know your identity, all of this uh, garbage when you just want to send your buddy five bucks. You know, you don't have to upload a copy of your driver's license and give this little startup your <laughs> social security number. So it seems cool, um, and then same same thing happened with open node. They got to a point where they the the regulatory eye was they felt like it was going to be on them, and so they went KYC and you know um, bottle pay. I think has executed this much better, um, and I think they made an honorable decision just to shut down the service because it is useless to have a service where you can only do small amounts. It's serving that niche, and now you gotta 
you got to do all this regulatory stuff. It just doesn't make sense. So I think they made the right call there. Hopefully they'll they'll find a way to pivot to another jurisdiction. But it does kind of show the importance of being able to do this on Lightning because um, you know Lightning's non-custodial. There's a lot of problems that we could solve with custodial solutions, but the thugs won't let us. And that's why we have Bitcoin. So that's why we have Lightning. So I, you know, it's a shame. I hope those guys figured it out. It was it was cool. It was the only way that I ever was able to tip anybody on Twitter and not feel like an idiot uh, that I couldn't get it figured out. Um, so uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully other services will come along. But um, but really, if it's custodial, I think we're going to just continue to see this. Okay. Well, I, I will say this about these guys: gr great minds. I hope they move to a, maybe it'll be a completely a, another project where they don't even have to worry about. Uh, government uh, regulation that that maybe I'm maybe I'm wishing too much there, but hey, good luck to those dudes. Uh, Jeet, your any thoughts on this? Um, yeah, the, the the immediate thought that comes to mind is like what a loss for the UK. Um, you know, anytime you have some type of disruptive technology like this, like I mean, how many times is the internet going to come across, right? So when you have something like the internet or you know the new potential gold. Um, which, you know, gold's been here for tens of thousands of years. People have used it. You got the new potential gold. You know, it kind of makes sense to, you know, potentially allow things to grow a little bit and have a little bit of a, a safe harbor for um, some of these new inventions. And, um, yeah, just kind of sad to see that they're letting that opportunity pass by. Um, this level of, like, oversight into transactions is not something that's historically been there because, um, you know, people have generally dealt in cash. So the fact that money's gone digital allows – people to track it better. But um, it's not entirely clear that it actually like, you know, solves some of those problems. Um, so, you know, they, everyone has to obey the law. But uh, it's just kind of see that the law is not adjusting for the potential opportunity. You know, you see the same thing in New York City, where there's like a lot of great startups and a lot of smart young people, they should be doing stuff with crypto. But some of them feel a little bit hamstrung, and a little bit intimidated, because in order to get a license from the government to run the uh, I forget what it's called the, the, the Bitcoin license. Um, it, it's like millions of dollars, right? So two people in a garage making Apple don't have a million dollars. And it just, it just feels like a kind of a waste on uh, whoever the regulator is to, to let the opportunity go by. Yeah, it, it, it is. It is a shame. Now we're going to, we're going to get uh, to the opposite of this. Uh, and well, what I think is sort of the opposite of this, at least an article and, and JW, you, you uh, were the one to actually inform me about this, that square is paying this pseudonymous, uh, Bitcoin developer, a, a, a lightning guy, uh, a grant, the, the Square Crypto grant is going to ZMNSCPXJ. Obviously, that's not his real name. We don't really know where he is, but a big corporation is paying him to work for them. And this is uh, this is the world, world we live in now. Yeah, absolutely. And it's awesome. Um, I have been paid more money uh, as a as a pseudonymous person uh, than I thought I was going to be able to over the last couple of years, um, and it's actually not that big of a deal. Uh, if it's a for profit company, you have to give them uh, you have to give them some paperwork. But if that paperwork isn't accurate, so you have to give them a, a W nine form. If that paperwork isn't accurate, it doesn't matter um, as long as you pay your taxes. So I've been paid from you know big companies that have given me money. Uh, they, they, you know, probably know that my real name is in JW Weatherman, but they don't really care. That's what it says on the, the W9. And I've talked to my attorneys and made sure, hey, it's fine. As long as you pay your taxes, it doesn't matter. The point is so they can track it. But at the end of the day, if you pay what you owe, 
then you're not liable for anything, right? And, you know, there's scary language on that W-9 that says you go to prison for the rest of your life or something. But <laughs> but that's my current understanding. I'm assuming that, that they took the, a similar route. Um, and it's freaking awesome because uh, you don't have to worry about, you know, weirdos uh, showing up at your house because they're on some competing chain. Uh, there was a, a post from Greg Maxwell not long ago about all the ways that he has been harassed, and it was completely terrifying and eye-opening, even to me. And I'm a paranoid weirdo, right? Like, I use a pen name, and it still scared me. So I think this is a great development. I think it should happen all the time. Like, why, why do I need to know your meatbag address in order to do business with you? It just doesn't make sense. I, I, I agree. Now, the ZM guy, he's in Asia probably. So there's no W9 involved in this. I, 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 on his side, I don't know what he's doing. Uh, yeah, international payments are a little bit different, and I don't I don't even know how that is supposed to work. I know I've done it, and I've probably done it wrong. I think most yeah, people that do And do so it that's what I'm, I'm wondering how Square can get away with this. Uh, I mean, I love that they're doing well, it. So, I mean, I've hired people. I've hired people out of Asia before and talked to CPAs, and they've said, no, there's nothing that you have to do. It's an expense. You write it off as an expense. They're not an embargoed country. And you don't have to do any paperwork between. I've never felt great about that. Like I still feel like someday I'm going to get audited and I'm going to write a check. But, but that that's what I've been told, and I I've I've heard it from a couple different CPAs that if they're if they're not a U.S. citizen, that that tracking system just kind of gets broken. Um, and uh, you know the the, the uh, you know the Taiwanese people have to handle it on their end or whatever to get their tax money. So it it, it may have even been easier with him not being a U.S. citizen than what I've gone through. But Really, it's we live at a time where you can spin up a pen name like J.W. Weatherman didn't exist ten, two years ago, right? You can spin up a pen name, you can do some, you know, reasonably passable work, build up a reputation, and you can earn a living. My son Will, you know, he's working under a pen name. He's sixteen. He's never had any income that wasn't under his pen name. So he may live his whole life where he always gets his paycheck in Bitcoin from people that don't know where he lives. And, you know, as a father, that's great for me because I know he doesn't have to get harassed in some ways that people get harassed. Oh, wow. That's a pretty cool take, man. That's that's interesting. Hey, uh, Jeet, your, your thoughts on this? Dude, I, I imagine some, I, I didn't think Taiwan. My first thought was there's some kid who's in Malaysia you know, living off a US level income and then uh, with the cost basis of like a Southeast Asian country, that's amazing. So, you know, you can, there's a little bit of an arbitrage there where somebody who's like really smart, but they're in a country like Malaysia or Philippines where they don't have as many opportunities. They just are able to service customers in the United States and they're making US wages, but you know, their costs are so low. So that's kind of cool. And it, it opens up some opportunities that if they're like local economy isn't that hot, they can kind of do this type of thing. You know, my, my other thought too, which I'd love to get your guys' take on was I totally imagine that there's probably some smart programmers who are, you know, in startups and, you know, maybe on other open source projects and they're kind of maybe too high profile to work on Bitcoin or to work on, you know, potentially kind of political, you know, dissident type of technology. So it, it'd be kind of cool to think that, you know, this opens up like a larger pool of developers to develop uh uh, on Bitcoin and other things that are seen as controversial. Oh yeah, that, that's that's a really uh, a, a good point there. They, that that uh, people that are known can now be unknown. Yeah, that's uh, BTC Benny. Any your thoughts on any of this? Yeah, uh, I th I think the interesting thing me is that. Uh, what we're getting to is we're getting to a point where, first of all, this was impossible just a, a few years back, right? To have a, a pseudonymous person getting paid remotely, not having to know who they are, not having to go through the banking system. It 
all of a sudden we're in a place where you can no longer have, uh, or it's possible to not have either identity politics or discrimination creep into the, the workplace because you don't know who the person is as it's, it's the work speaks for itself. So if somebody can, uh, basically create a service um, or, or, or um, you know, complete a job and do it well, you don't know who the individual is. You just pay them for what they're doing. There's no longer um, the, the worry of, oh, this person didn't get the job because they are X, Y, or Z. Um, it, there's no longer that, uh, that, oh, it's, there's a wage gap because of this, or this person was discriminated against for whatever reason. It's literally just the, the qualified people get the the work. And so it, it takes that kind of identity politics out of the workplace as well. And I think that's that's a great place to be where where people can achieve what they can achieve and not have to worry about that aspect of it, which um, I, I don't know. I, I just started kind of going down that line of thought recently, and I, I find it to be an interesting one. All right, let me hang on a second. I just, you there still, Benny? I, oh, yeah, I'm here. Okay, good, good, good. JW, uh, any thoughts on what Jeet or uh, Benny had to say? No, I mean, I think they're, I think they're spot on. It's a, it's exciting, right? I mean, there's a lot of people that haven't gotten jobs because they were white. Um, there's a lot of people that haven't gotten jobs because they're black um, or Indian or whatever. And it is cool that that's going away. And, you know, I think that it's worse now than it was pre-internet. Um, and, now that we do have internet money, it can be like it was way back when people just hired the person, you know, a hundred years ago, most people were too hungry to screw over their neighbor uh, because they didn't like the way they looked. Right. And I think we're getting back to the point where people will just pick the person that does the best work. They're not going to ask, Hey, by the way, are you white? Cause I have some quota uh, positive or negative. Um, and uh, yeah, it's exciting, man. It's a, it's a, it's a really good development uh, in the midst of a lot of shitty ones, but but I think it can overwrite most of the ones that we're worried about. All right. Hire Malaysians and Philippine Pinos, you big companies out there. Give them some opportunities if they're the best dudes. Use Bitcoin. We don't really need to know who the heck, heck they are. We're getting into a, a whole new realm here. Now, I want to check. I want to thank FF2K. He sent $5 in the chat. Uh, CS2 sent 10 bucks, And he says, in the world of technology, Bitcoin is alive on the Internet. It's heart beats every 10 minutes. Oh, yeah. I like that. Pound that like That's button, awesome. people. If you guys got questions, you can do that super chat. You can type in Bitcoin Meister there. We will answer your questions. We are all looking at that chat. I want to move on to some big controversy here. And I will start off with JW. Uh, that Keep Key, Keep Key uh, Kraken found out that uh, Keep, Keep Key is vulnerable if, uh, if you have one in your possession someone could get a hold of your Bitcoin if you don't have a passphrase on it. Okay. Now I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to freak anyone out like that. Uh, I, I was not a, a keep key fan for various reasons and they were, they, they've been selling them for like five bucks a piece lately. Uh, again, if you, if you keep it in your possession and you've, and you've got a, uh, a passphrase, you're cool. But uh, JW, your thoughts on this. So uh I'm not a big fan of hardware wallets in general. I think the big lesson here is not to focus on keep key because we've seen vulnerabilities released on open uh, or uh, for like open dime uh, Rodolfo Novak's company. I'm forget cold card. We've seen vulnerabilities for cold card in the last month or six weeks. We've seen vulnerabilities in Trezor over the last couple of years. There's been vulnerabilities in ledger. 
Um, and so it, it, it's not just a keep key issue. These things are a bad idea. Uh, fundamentally, they're a bad idea. And I don't want you guys to freak out and start trying to move your coins because then you'll do something asinine and screw up. You got to be really careful. If you've got if you've got money on one of these things, take a deep breath. You don't, if it's not connected to a device, you don't have to freak out. You have, you know, you have a reasonable amount of time, several months, let's say, before I think that it, it, you're, you're likely to get burned by something. But, but hardware wallets, they don't, like in this case, there's not even a secure element, right? So the shitty smart card that you get from your business, um, you know, to get in the front door that has the chip, you know, that maybe you slide into a, a crappy smart card reader, that has a secure element on it. They didn't even bother to do this with these devices. But even if you did that, you can go look at my Twitter uh, feed. I asked a really prominent security researcher just a couple of days ago named Dan Kaminsky. He did the first security review of Bitcoin actually, and was one of the people that helped expose Craig Wright as a fraud. Um, I, I said, look, if it did have a secure element and I threw a bunch of Bitcoin on it and sent it to you and didn't give you the information, how much Bitcoin would I have to put on this just you know, off the cuff to be confident you'd take the time to steal it, right? Very good thought experiment. And he said roughly 100K. That, that means that that's the first time he's ever done it, right? So I send him an open a dime or I send him a cold card or I send him a treasure. His off the cuff is it might take him $100,000 worth of effort uh, or, you know, maybe he's thinking half that because he's actually going to take the time to do that. So, you know, people respond and say, oh, well, you do multi-sig. Well, look, it's $100,000 per device, right? So if there's four devices on the marketplace, we're talking about, what, maybe uh, 30 man weeks, right? Because these guys are really expensive. They're 200 plus an hour guys. So 30 man weeks and you have every hardware device that's out there. So if you're storing, um, if you're storing large amounts of money on this thing and you're expecting it to protect you physically, it's just, it's, it's security theater. It's not a good idea. Stop it. But a more important problem with these things is that they usually, you know, the, the people that buy them are buying them because they're user friendly. They're not going to set up their own node most of the time. And so, you know, you buy a Trezor from Amazon, you think you're doing the right thing. You shared your Bitcoin balance and your home address with Trezor. That's the reality of the situation. And that's what people should be way more concerned about than somebody just grabbing it, you know, out of their drawer and stealing their Bitcoin funds. Okay. This sounds like Trace from last night. He said, he sound that, that last part about giving your address to Trezor, he, he brought up that same thing. So my question for you, JW, is what should the average Joe do? What should the average Joe's storage uh, protocol be? So if you're storing more than $50,000, let's say US worth of Bitcoin, you shouldn't use anything other than uh, Bitcoin Core. And the only exception to that would be, and I was forced into doing this, right? Because I, I planned on writing a doc that was just going to walk people through using Bitcoin Core. I did end up writing a small Python script similar to uh, Glacier Protocol. So Glacier Protocol is a good option. I'd recommend that. It's just hard to use. It's a hassle. So what I did is I created yeticold.com. It's a Python script that walks you through setting up Bitcoin Core. You have an online and an offline machine. It sucks though, in the sense that you do have to trust that that little bit of code that I wrote isn't doing anything malicious. So it's far less ideal than just being able to trust Bitcoin Core, but that's the best that I can offer right now. What I definitely would say is you don't want anything other than Bitcoin Core to be doing critical things like generating the, uh, the randomness for your seeds or your private keys. Like it's barely trustworthy as it is. There's, let me put this in context. There's critical code in Bitcoin Core right now that's being written. And there's two or three developers that look at it regularly. And Bitcoin Core is probably a hundred times more reviewed than anything else. 
So don't use anything else. It's already bad enough. All right. This obviously people are freaking out now. Uh, <laughs> but so I, I, I'm going to say I obviously I know people that uh, keep more than fifty thousand dollars on a Trezor and everything. Uh, and but uh, he's uh, we're not all going to agree on this stuff. So, Jeet, your take. Yeah, I think uh, I mean, it, it, this is so tough. So, you know, one of the things that that comes to mind for me is uh there, there's been several of these uh, like situations where this pops up and uh, you know, you, you have the wallet uh, and you feel like, okay, well now I'm a target. Right. Um, it, there, there was uh, I think it's just confusing, right? Because you know, the risk is if you go to upgrade in the process of upgrading or switching things around, like JW brought up, um, you could actually misplace your Bitcoin, right? Cause you're in a mad rush. You're confused. You know, people knowing that, like for example, when Electrum was targeted like two years ago, people knew that Electrum had an error. So then people would post like fake Electrum kind of web pages for you to go to and kind of target you in that way. And that's that's like the risk. And um, and um, so I think there's just mass confusion. So I think the question for for JW is like, how should we think about wallets? Or like, you know, there's so many different types of hardware wallets. There's Ledger. There's Treasure. Let's let's say yeah, Cold so Card. So, so like, uh, what are the what are the, the the kind of axes of security that you think about? Like, one would be, for example, how complicated is the device, or you know, has it been so broken? Here's, here's the fundamental used to kind of even just start to judge. Right. It's a it's a really good question. So the fundamental problem is that the best that we can do, like the best that humanity can do to create a device that you physically have access to and is unhackable, is these secure elements these secure elements are not even close to unhackable. So in that thread, Dan Kaminsky explained that he would use Tempest, which means he would take that device, he'd put it in a rig that listens to all the electromagnetic chatter that comes off the device when it's crunching numbers. We don't have any technology to do that or to prevent that. Humanity is just not capable of that. So the problem with hardware wallets, when they are marketed and when they're presented to people as if somebody gets this device, they can't take your Bitcoin, is that it's just fundamentally untrue. It also highlights why Bitcoin itself is kind of incredible and cryptography is kind of incredible. Because if you, for example, have a multi-sig setup, you, let's say you use Bitcoin Core, like yeti.yetiCold.com would have you do. You use a multi-sig setup and somebody gets a hold of one of your private keys. There's not enough computing power in the universe to be able to hack your Bitcoin, right? That really is the promise of what hardware wallets are offering. Uh, but if you get access to those private keys, even if they're on a chip that's a quote secure element, you know, all bets are off. So use multi-sig, use Bitcoin Core. Uh, it is a pain in the app. It's a pain in the butt. But do that if uh, if it's a significant amount of money. Now, if you've got, you know, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40,000 dollars, use uh, use a use an open node, uh, not an open node, a cold card like Rodolfo is a super cool guy. It's a cool product. He's always making it more fun and interesting to use. Totally appropriate for some. And, and maybe I'm wrong, right? Maybe it's good up to 100,000 or 150,000. These are just gut feel off the gut sort of numbers. I mean, Dan Kaminsky didn't spend six months or you know even six hours thinking about what it would cost him to hack that. It was just off the cuff, right? So use these as general guidelines, general gut feel. But if it's more than a lot, if it's a lot more than $50,000, don't use anything other than Bitcoin Core. Um, if it's less, then any of these are probably fine. Benny. Yeah, so uh, I guess I've got further questions for JW here. Uh, so 
my understanding of a lot of these attacks are are they are physical. Obviously, there's an element of trust when it comes to what what is the software doing, um, even like in just generating the seed. You were talking about entropy. I know that uh, Rodolfo with the the cold card allows you to introduce your own entropy even by rolling dice when you're setting up the seed. So um, that hopefully would and and it's open source so you know hopefully that would mitigate some of that um how much of what you're talking about is is remote versus getting your hands on the physical device and how much of that uh is affected by having introducing uh, an additional passphrase on top of your seed so the the real problem with a lot of this stuff is that even though it's open source there's just not that many people reviewing the code, right? Mm -hmm. So if Trezor put out a fix, how many people do you think are actually competent and are looking at that fix every time they do it to make sure that they didn't just change the code so that um, when you put in your dice, it is ignored, right? There's, there's no way for you to know that unless you actually review the code. So even though it's open source, it has to be super popular open source in order to be secure. And that's why I say there's only one that's super popular and open source, and that's Bitcoin Core. So if you want a trustworthy source of randomness for your private keys, use Bitcoin Core, don't use anything else. And there, there's kind of three different ways that I look at hardware wallets or two, three different major problems. One is privacy. Another is that they're not a full node. And then the third is just that they promise physical security when they don't, then when, you know, the writing checks their butt can't cash, right? There is no physical security. It's deceptive to make people think that. Um, the full node issue is, is a design flaw. And that is that when, when people are buying these, they're buying them because they want to be able to plug them into an untrustworthy laptop and still not have their Bitcoin stolen. But the laptop is doing a lot of important things. It's verifying, let's say that you are more extreme than most and that laptop's a full node. It's verifying that you're getting genuine Bitcoin. Do you wanna actually get genuine Bitcoin? Then you better have a full node that's on a trustworthy device. You can't, you can't have an untrustworthy laptop that's your full node and plug in your cold card and be confident that you're getting genuine Bitcoin. So every single thing that that laptop does that's important that's not happening on the hardware wallet is a huge security design flaw. Another thing that's come up recently is address generation. So change addresses are generated on the laptop. Well, what if that change address is modified in some way to only so that only the attacker knows where it's going, or maybe it's their own address. So every single thing that that laptop does that the hardware wallet doesn't do that's important is a big problem. And I think that that is, I, I think that's pretty deceptive marketing because the only people that buy these hardware wallets are buying them because they don't feel like they can trust their laptop. So logically what you'd have to do to address all those problems is move all of those functions slowly over to a hardware wallet. And what do you have when you're done doing that? You have Bitcoin Core running on a Ubuntu laptop that's freshly installed, doing everything that a full node does because everything a full, everything a full node does is security sensitive. So you don't want that to be anywhere else. And then the third area is privacy. And you have to be using your hardware node again with a full node. So you might as well just have a full node. Uh, but the reason that people buy these hardware devices is because they don't feel competent to set up a full node. So a lot of it is, you know, these things are cool. I, I would like to play with them. I'd play with them a lot more if I could buy them without having to give up my identity um, and be on a list because, you know, I'm paranoid. But I think they're fun 
and that's fine. But it's when they start making you feel like you're safe, either with physical access or with an insecure laptop you're plugging it into or using it as it's designed out of the box. You just plug it in and you use their centralized service to check your balances. All of those things are where I have a problem, where the marketing and the, the reason that people are buying them don't match reality. So the, that's that's my take on that. If it's a small amount, you know, you don't really care about privacy. Um, and, and to be clear, when I say that you're sharing your home address with Trezor when you use a Trezor, it's not just when you buy the device. It's also when you plug it in to check your balance because it calls Trezor services from your IP address. You know, maybe you're using Tor, maybe you're using a VPN. But look, these things are marketed to people that are not super technical. And so I know what they're doing. They're plugging the damn things in and they're giving their IP address, which is easily correlated with their home address to anybody that cares to go through the trouble, to Trezor along with every single UTXO that they have. I don't think most people buying Trezors know that. And that's why I have a problem with it. It's, it's the deception. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So just to jump in there, this, this, is, uh, this is such a good point that it's kind of like, you know, we're transitioning all of our all of our valuable stuff, all of our relationships, all of our actual phys like physical money and everything to digital from physical. And in physical, I feel like we have a set of kind of procedures and things that work. So if I have like an expensive, uh, you know, if I have a stick of gold, I'm not sure I want to keep. I don't feel comfortable in the security environment in an apartment or a house that's open, you know, near a major street and a, you know, somebody could come in and and just break it in and take it. So, okay, maybe I'll leave it, uh, I'll leave it at the bank or something. And so, you know, when you're traveling to and from places, if you're going into a bad area, you know, maybe don't leave your laptop uh, on the backseat of the car because if somebody sees it, they're going to maybe try to go and get it. And so there's like these like physical things that we do to try to like protect our money and, and our, our valuable stuff. And now that everything is digital, I don't think we have any sense of what is, you know, like there's some neighborhoods in San Francisco where if you leave your car with the windows uh, up, it's gonna the, the window's gonna get broken. We don't know where those neighborhoods are digitally. And I think we also just have no sense of like what is actually valuable and what's not. So, you know, when somebody grabs your Twitter account or they grab, you know, your Facebook account and hack into you, they're actually hacking into all of your relationships. So there's a, um, a two-bit idiot on Twitter. He's been hacked like five or six times. It's like every week he's, he's, he's got a new hack. and you know, these screenshots keep coming up where it's, you know, so he tweets somebody like urgently, like, hey, I need to get some Bitcoin in. Somebody on the other side is thinking like, well, I value this relationship. The guy's in trouble. I might as well send him some money. And and so they're able to just kind of take advantage of these things. So I don't think people yet have the, the, the sense online for safety that they do like physically. JW? Yeah, Benny? no, I, I think he's spot on there, man. I think that's absolutely true. Um, like in physical things, we have pretty good instincts. If you leave your laptop on your backseat, you know, and it gets stolen, people are going to be like, ah, you're, you're an idiot. Um, but when it comes to stuff like this, you're really relying on marketing from the companies that are selling you products. And then weirdo randos like me to just complain when I don't think they're good. And that's a tough thing to try to navigate. Um, that said, I don't want to overstate the risk here. Um, there haven't been a whole lot of people saying, hey, my Bitcoins have been hacked. So don't panic. Don't do anything dumb. Um, take your time, make a plan to migrate to Bitcoin Core uh, for your Bitcoins that are, you know, significant value and in cold storage. I obviously put a lot of work into YetiCold.com with my son, and I think it's pretty decent, but it's in beta, right? So take it, take it slow and be careful. Um, 
but the other thing is we got to put this in context with like the rest of the banking system and everything else. Like every, it's not just Bitcoin, right? So you might be freaking out that your Bitcoin can be stolen right now. Your the stuff in your bank is absurd. Like my biggest problem with unchained capital and Casa whole is that they're trying to bring security of Bitcoin back to the banking system era. It, it's not that banks are safer, they're worse, right? It's much easier, I promise you, to impersonate you uh, with a bank, you know, do a SIM swap, do a couple other things and draw money out of your bank account than it is to steal your Bitcoin right now, even if it's on, what is this, a, a, a keep key, right? Like I would much rather have my money in a keep key right now with all the issues that it has than have it in a US bank account because that stuff is riddled with security holes that you wouldn't believe. The only difference is that the taxpayers fit the bill on all that. Uh, right now, all of those costs are hidden in the banking system because it'll probably be reversed and you'll probably get an FBI agent assigned to your case for free and you'll probably get all these hidden benefits. But we're paying for them. You know, we're paying for them in the fact that beef is 4% more expensive every year for everybody. And that's part of part of that expense goes to covering all the uh, all the nonsense in the banking system that makes you think that you're safe when you're absolutely not. But you don't care because you don't you don't realize you're paying for it no matter what. All right. Anyone with uh, conclusionary remarks on this uh, this topic here of uh, storage? Uh, to me, it it's it still feels like there's a spectrum. Like uh, again, as, as JW was saying, um, you know, it depends on the amount what you're trying to do. And uh, again, always assume that if somebody gets your somebody gets your physical device, well, they're they very likely will get a hold of your Bitcoin. That should always be the assumption and be be ready on hand with it. Um, but there's there's always going to be worries um, unless unless you end up doing a, a, a multi-sig setup like JW was saying with Bitcoin Core. Um, I, and and realistically, how many people are actually going to do that and, and be able to learn and do that? Uh, we'll see. So um yeah i i guess it, it just goes to prove things are still very imperfect and and hopefully they'll get better and hopefully we get to a point where there are enough eyeballs on on certain products and and the code behind it that we can be more confident in the way it's executing but time will tell i will say this you, you do have to put it all in perspective like uh jw said better than banks uh with that in mind Proof of keys, people. It's coming up. Uh, if if you're new to the space and you still have your coins on Coinbase or whatever, this is the time to learn how to send your Bitcoin properly. Okay, that that's what uh you should take proof of keys as. Uh, we talked about Trace and I talked about it on the show last night. You you can watch it. Uh, does anyone have comments on proof of keys before we uh, get off of this uh, storage topic? Uh, are you guys enthused? <laughs> Do you think uh, it'll bring down some exchanges at all? Uh, yeah, I, I think it'll be kind of a repeat of last year. I think I think um, more people will probably partake. I don't think it's necessarily going to take down any exchanges. Uh, but hey, hopefully it becomes more of a mainstay of, of the Bitcoin ethos. And every year, more and more people partake. Um, I'd like to see it become pretty widespread, but I, I don't think it's there yet. Uh, I don't really have... Bitcoin with any custodians. So I, I get to just watch from afar, but uh, you know, I'll, I'll celebrate like everybody else. We know with, with proof of keys is very interesting because we have all these companies out there that are now offering uh, to hold your Bitcoin and they're going to give you interest. 
So some people are, are still going to keep their Bitcoin with those uh, third parties, which I think is I think is unfortunate. I am not down with any of the companies that uh, give interest on the Bitcoin. I say control your own private key, people. Uh, Jeet, your your thoughts on uh, proof of keys? Yeah, any? I think um, I you know I like the idea a lot. The reason why I like it is because if you don't have this proof of keys type of situation where the reserves, uh, let's just call them exchanges, is like compared to banks. If somebody isn't paying attention to the bank, then what's going to happen is, you know, really well-connected people are going to get loans for cheap and, you know, um, they're not going to pay the loans back. And then the losses are absorbed by the other depositors. So this is something that's happened historically in the United States, happened uh, in India just recently with a massive uh, bank failure. Um, and this is a bank that was in, you know, for 60, 70 years, it was operating perfectly and complete failure. And uh, the people who got all their money out, were the really well-connected people, the people who've been using it for cheap loans, very well-connected people. And in almost every single country that I've like Googled around and looked, uh, you've been able to see a similar scenario. And I think we got to avoid that type of thing in, in our space, in the Bitcoin space by self-regulating. And that's through stuff like proof of keys where you just kind of, you know, gut check the exchanges and see, you know, are they prepared? And, and it just kind of potentially exposes that. It's like when the uh, tide goes out in the water, you find out who's swimming naked and we'll find out you know, if there's potentially players who are being unsafe or don't have the proper reserves. JW. Yeah, I love it, man. I think I think this is maybe going to be Trace's greatest uh, legacy is coming up with this concept because uh, this is one of the cases where I do want people to freak out, right? Like, don't freak out over Keep Key and move your Bitcoins rapidly, but do freak out in this case. And the reason I say that is that if you're listening, there's probably, this is my gut feel, of course, a one in 20 chance that the exchange that your Bitcoins are on is going to be insolvent over this event. So if you're comfortable with that, leave them there. But the the great thing about this bank run concept is that if, if they're running at a reserve, the people that are the most fearful, that don't take them out on the third, that take them out on the second, are going to be better off. But the people that take them out on the first are going to be better off still, right? Who's going to get left holding the bag when there is an insolvent exchange and if this does force uh, an exchange to go bankrupt, it's going to be the people that move first. So if you have your money uh, on one of these exchanges, I do think it's a really good idea to not only do it on the third, but do it a couple days early because you don't want to be the last one to pull it out. You're going to be the guy that is the case study that tells everybody else that the exchange was insolvent, right? You, you don't want to be the last one without a chair. So do panic if you have money on an exchange just you know, for a few days. Panic, get it off. And then if you're, you know, you're a degenerate trader and you got to put it back on, put it back on. But when you got a one in 20 chance or maybe even a one in 50 chance of all of that money being vaporized, take it off for three days, right? I really think you put it in perspective there. I think those are good numbers to think of. There's a, between a two and 5% chance that this movement could actually bring down a, an exchange and uh, you don't want to be the person on that exchange. So uh, th th those are... And again, he's pulling those numbers out of his head. Uh, I think I, I'm, I'm thinking of those numbers right now. You, you see my head moving. I, I think that's a good way to think of it. Two to five percent chance that this brings down in an exchange, and uh, that's big enough that it, that that is not that is not worth the risk at all. By the way, all these dudes are linked to below. Pound that like button. All right. Speaking of, well, we're going to move on to mining real quick here. Jeet, uh, you read that report. Uh, uh, that mining report. Tell us about it. Yeah, so I read the report from at Bitfury George, who's the CEO of uh, Bitfury, which is a mining company based in Georgia. 
and uh, he kind of he kind of put together an interesting uh, analysis, which says that hey, there's kind of this paradigm shift go happening in in the way that you run a profitable mining company. So um, in every industry, you know, there's uh, whatever the new thing is can can generally charge higher prices um, because they're solving something new. So for example, you know, Bitmain has been like the boogeyman in the space for such a long time, and for a number of years, we're all really concerned because they were producing top tier mining equipment. And so it kind of presented a concentration risk. But one of the things that is beautiful is that, um, you know, when somebody's making that much excess profit margin above beyond uh, what you like normally consider and beyond the opportunity set, there was a ton of people who were looking at that like really hungry eyes and thinking like, I kind of want to be making those type of profit margins. So of course you had a ton of people and a ton of capacity and, and mental uh, energy going into well, hey, how do we copy their hardware? How do we copy their their methods for putting together these chips? And you know, who can we hire away from their company? Um, and then, sure enough, other people started to develop equivalent uh, kind of technology. And um, Bitfury George is just pointing out that, hey, this is kind of interesting. That now that the kind of mining hardware layer is becoming a little bit more commoditized, and that the there's not that much variance between the best. Um, mining hardware and the worst mining hardware, uh, that's no longer someplace to compete. So if you have a better relationship with Bitmain than me, it doesn't mean that you're going to make more money than I am. It, now the relationship is equal because I have alternative suppliers. So anytime somebody has a monopoly, they have bad service and they overcharge, uh, quote unquote overcharge. Um, but now that there's competitors, the price is down, anybody can become a miner. So now where do you compete? So now that revenue has kind of potentially come down a little bit, um, the other place that you look for is your costs. And the largest cost in mining operations is electricity. So um, I think he's pointing this out because I think my understanding is that he has kind of, uh, Bitfury has like sweetheart deals where they're contracted with like local large utilities um, and they're getting really cheap electricity prices. Um, similarly, you see miners kind of uh, crowding around places with hydroelectricity because that type of renewable energy is extremely cheap. So everyone now is going to be focused on reducing their costs for their mining equipment. Where is the lowest cost place? It's, it's where you have renewable energy. And then if somebody wants to make an even bigger investment, we're talking, you know, 10, 20 years in the future, um, the lowest cost energy is of course, nuclear power. So nuclear power is something that is actually extremely safe relative to all the fears that people have. But um, this is how something like Bitcoin, which is just a pure price signal, gets all these people um, interested and involved and acting all these different ways. And it kind of leads to, you know, new breakthroughs uh, that we wouldn't have seen without it. So right now the breakthrough is, wow, we have really strong ASIC mining equipment. And the future breakthrough is this is going to lead to uh, nuclear power becoming popularized again and delivering free or, or you know, low cost, uh, cheap electricity for everyone. So now, the world's constrained because nobody wants the people in Africa or Asia to become more developed because it's going to cause climate chaos, right? So there's these kind of, I mean, it feels like kind of an effort to, you know, not have them develop as quickly, but with free nuclear energy and, you know, th those constraints are no longer there. So it's kind of a really optimistic way to think about the world. Uh, and that was maybe not the full focus of his article, which was more on the commodity hardware, but that's the kind of vision that that's like the natural logical next step of that. All right. I, I appreciate that you read that whole thing and gave us a good summary like that. It was not everyone could not everyone could pull that off. Do, do you guys have any comments on, on the mining situation at JW or Benny? Yeah, yeah. Actually, I think um, I mean, 
two years ago, I was debating Luke Dash Jr. and Cobra as these guys were pushing for a proof of work change. And uh, I was saying, look, we need to get to a point where these ASICs are commoditized because that's what secures the network. If we do a proof of work change, it resets the clock on that. And we have all this new opportunity to have you know, just a few small people have a lot of control over the network because they're the only ones with that specialized hardware. It takes time for things to become commoditized. So I think it's awesome that only two years later, we're at the point where we're like, oh yeah, all the, all the hardware is commoditized. That has a huge impact on Bitcoin security. Um, you know, thank God that we did not change the proof of work. Uh, if, if it comes up in the future and there's another attempt, because that's one of those few attacks on Bitcoin that won't go away. There's always going to be the potential to convince a lot of people to change the proof of work and basically obliterate our security. Um, so be aware of that. Be one of the people that are saying, no, bad idea. Uh, but it's awesome that we're in such a, a strong footing now compared to two years ago where that, you know, we had some pretty popular people advocating that. And uh, it, it was a, a viable possibility. Yeah, that attack factor will come up again. It's it's all cyclical. I I, I foresee that. Uh, I don't know when, but it it, it there were legitimate names uh, talking about it. So uh, who who knows? Uh, B, BTC Benny. Yeah, it's it it is nice to see that uh, you know the further decentralization of of mining itself. Um, ever, you know, especially ever since we ran smack dab into Moore's law, and and now you have that time horizon where it takes a little bit longer for new chips to come out. Um, it's it makes it a little less practical for uh, for people that are manufacturing the chips to hold on to them too long and mine themselves, uh, before pushing them out to market. So, um, yeah, it, it, it does just kind of help the, the whole space in general, where there's kind of a little bit more equal access. It's nice to see, um, new ASIC manufacturers pop up around the globe. I'm sure that will be further, uh, decentralized. We did, there was a recent, uh, article about, China having what 66% of hash rate or something like that. Um, it, there was a recent uptick, but I think that also, I could be mistaken, but that also coincided with uh, some of the new chips that have just been started to, uh, to hit the market. And since a lot of them are manufactured within China, then that could be coinciding with the initial, Hey, we're going to run these a bit and then send them out. Um, but again, like it, it, if you look at the bigger trend, it is leaning towards uh, things being kind of more globally uh, diversified. There's a lot of it going on in here in Alberta as well. Um, there's stranded natural gas in Northern Alberta uh, where I live. And you have people like Steve Barber um, who are basically rolling up skids that are portable miners and they're, they're capturing natural gas that would have been just vented into the atmosphere. And they're capturing that waste and converting it into uh, power to mine Bitcoin. Um, so yeah, it's, you know, it, it leans towards the, the cheapest, uh, available power. And in this case, it's actually a plus for the environment as well, because that would have, that would have been terrible for the environment if it was, it was vented. Now, instead of paying that carbon tax and polluting, it's now being burned and used for something good, which is securing the Bitcoin network. So yeah. Awesome. Good, good, uh, good bringing up Steve Barber. He's been on the show before. I've obviously, we've all hung out together. Good, good dude doing that. That's some creative stuff up there. All right, Jeet, uh, uh, since you started the topic, do you have anything uh, to say to conclude this topic? No, I, I, uh, I think this is, uh, this is awesome. This is the kind of dream of Bitcoin that 
there's now something that stands outside all of these you know people who want to interfere in the marketplace and it just provides pure price signal and it allows people to kind of coordinate around that so super excited about the potential for this um sorry one other thing that just kind of came to my mind um inter i was at a bitcoin conf or a kind of bitcoin ish fintech conference in um, toronto and one of the folks there was a kind of an academic they put together an analysis of fx rates the official fx rates published by governments versus the local bitcoins fx rates and um they kind of saw a correlation between when the price of the currency um makes large movements on uh local bitcoins it kind of predicts that oh wow so now that all these people are trying to get their money out of that currency um and the there's a, a bitcoin premium there um what's happening is there's going to be a move or there has been a move where the government is um messing around with the supply of that local currency so this is something that's come up in places like Argentina and of course Venezuela but it's kind of cool because those governments depend on um manipulating the price in all the newspapers and everything else so if there's some source that says you know the price that they're telling you is actually a lie the real price is much higher for your currency um and that means by the way that all your food is much more expensive and everything else um it it's just a cool signal for those people in those countries to have you know some alternative source than their local newspaper to to understand what their real situation is so that's just a small example but that's the kind of vision here yeah for for those who can dig that deep in those countries though to, to find these alternative sources i mean that's the thing most people just go with what the government tells them to do now on that topic the government telling you to do something uh i i, I didn't go over this topic with any of you before the show so maybe you read the article but in greece uh, they, they say that uh, citizens have to spend 30% of their income now uh, electronically or they're going to get penalized uh, yeah. because th this is a way to avoid uh, people not paying their taxes. Who has comments on this? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll dive in. I was, I was talking about it on the show the other day, but yeah, essentially you have to spend uh, yeah, 30% of, of your given monthly income electronically. And if you fail to do so, whatever remains out of that 30% will incur, I don't know if they're calling it a fine or a tax, but it's 22% of whatever's left. So let's say you make a thousand euros in a month and you now need to spend 300 euros of electronically. Uh, then that remaining 100 euros will be taxed at a rate of 22%, which is in, insane. Um, it, you know, the, the war on cash is real. Uh, there is, we also have it this in the same breath. There is another story about Italy too, where uh, next year cash purchases over 2000 euros will be illegal. And a year later, cash purchases over 1000 euros will be illegal. Um, and if you do allow for a cash purchase over a certain amount, you'll be fined. Um, and if you refuse to accept credit cards, you'll get a, I believe it's a 30 euro fine plus a percentage of the disputed amount that was not allowed to be paid by the customer. Uh, so yeah, the war on cash is very much accelerating. Uh, but luckily, hopefully people clue in and they can utilize bitcoin yes utilize bitcoin be figure out ways with bitcoin to get around all that there's nonsense in those countries i'm glad i'm not in italy or greece uh do you guys have thoughts on that yeah, let me jump in on that one because uh you know to your point earlier about like 
who can actually access the stuff outside of their country. The the uh, the war on cash is a, is a problem because um, it's kind of pitched as this way to get rid of crime and everything else. But the problem is that the the people who are actually using cash are just kind of marginalized uh, poor people or they're elderly people who don't know how to use like electronic payments. Um, and cash still represents something like 50% of all the payments in the world today. Um, so when you've seen other countries making moves like this to get rid of uh, di- um, to get rid of cash in the favor of digitized payments, uh, the people who get impacted are the poor. So in India, uh, they did something called demonetization. They took all the old $100 bills. They said, those are illegal now, but um, y- you know, you got to use these new $100 bills, which you only get from the bank. So you got to, you got to go to the bank, show up and transfer it. And um, what ended up happening, of course, was all the really well-connected people showed up to the bank first and the night before <laughs> they got all their money out. And so the people who were left standing in line for days were like just the kind of normal average everyday people and the poor people who are like selling vegetables and, you know, running their own small businesses, they're just completely disadvantaged because their middle-class customers don't even have cash to give them. So they're like stuck at the very edge of the network. And, um, you know, when you have these like withdrawals of like, you know, key services like that, it's the poor who are impacted the most. So this thing in in Greece, it's kind of a great headline for them and it makes them look like they're getting a lot of stuff done. But it's also kind of dangerous because, you know, in Greece, no one actually pays their, uh, I shouldn't say no one, but very few people pay their tax, according to all the newspaper stories. And I was reading this thing that apparently 5% of the population, which is the middle class, who have salaries, so it's easily visible, uh, they're the ones who actually pay the tax. They pay about half the taxes, just those 5%. And so the really wealthy people already have, you know, businesses uh, outside of the country and bank accounts outside of the country. But your normal average everyday guy is just stuck there like, he doesn't even read the newspaper. He shows up like, wait, you're saying my dollar bill doesn't work anymore. Um, so yeah, the, the impact of this, make no mistake, is going to be on the kind of marginalized people in the world. Yeah, the, the real criminals aren't using cash. They're using HSBC. <laughs> totally. And before you get too excited about, uh, you know, not being in, in uh, Greece or Italy or France or these places that are that are being more aggressive on cash, the reason that the U.S. isn't that aggressive on cash is that it's more sophisticated, right? So everybody's freaking out about you know China and its dystopia. Meanwhile, we have the greatest surveillance state the world's ever seen, right? Everybody's freaking out about demonetization or the ca- the war on cash in Greece right now. But you just said almost nobody pays taxes in Greece. I would love to be in Greece now, right now, <laughs> being one of those people that don't pay taxes. Uh, I pay all of my taxes because I'm terrified of the eye of Sauron, and I know it's here. It's not over in Greece. It's in the United States. We are the absolute best at collecting taxes. We're the best at surveillance um, and we're good at propaganda. So we don't do stuff that's all rough and ready and we just pass a law at 30%. We just work out a deal with PayPal, MasterCard and Visa behind the scenes. We, we make sure that Twitter censors the right stuff. And, uh, you know, we get, we get stuff done like a sophisticated empire, not like a bunch of, uh, you know, retards that are going to go out there and make it obvious. So don't be too happy that you live in the land of the free because um, we've got it dialed in. So let me let me push back on that a little bit. One of the things that's important to note is that um, if it, the, like economists have uh, measures of who pays how much tax and how much they expect, there's actually less tax evasion in the United States than economists would predict because people generally like, you know, even though I love, I'm the first person to complain like the roads are bad and you know, the taxes are definitely like too high and the government spending is very inefficient, but people like like to feel like they're contributing towards something. So the amount of tax evasion is actually far lower than what you'd expect. So the no, US- I, that, that's what I'm saying. 
That's, that, that, that's my point. The, the amount of tax evasion in the U.S. is far lower. You might say it's because we love paying taxes, but if you know very many Americans, you might change your mind. We don't love paying taxes. We hate paying taxes, but we're yeah, scared. Point. Okay. We're terrified. I have sat through audits with a guy that makes $30,000 a year, and it took like 80 hours of torture of him going through all of his receipts. Like We know how to make it sting. And we know how to send a message to a population that you don't evade taxes without having to seem so heavy handed. Jeet, you were saying. No, no. I, I mean, it's, it's, it is really hard to tell, but I, you know, I, I need to look more into it, but I, I do think that people like, well, it's hard to say. I think your average person, I mean, there's definitely billionaires and things who can avoid the taxes just like in Greece, but I think your average person, maybe they don't like it and they complain about it, but they do pay their taxes. And I think it, so I don't think it's all the surveillance state. I think some part of it is like people do feel like the government is providing legitimate services. Um, and I think that the problem in places like Greece is Greece, India is the government's not providing any services to begin with. So people feel very comfortable avoiding taxes. Like in Mexico, it's a similar situation. Nobody pays the taxes. Um, and I, yeah, I think that it's, it, I think it's more driven by the lack of government services being delivered at all. So there's no public goods whatsoever. So the tax feels more like a, a mafia shakedown kind of thing. So uh, I, I, I would argue that that's more propaganda. If you're yeah. a normal person in the United States and you call 911, you're not getting a cop to show up and take care of you until it's time to mop up the blood. I'm sure it's the same thing in the middle of nowhere in Pakistan, but we feel better about it because we've been propagandized since we were three years old in public school for the last you know two decades. I, I, I will say this about what JW said about propaganda, uh, that there are a lot of Americans who blindly, blindly believe, yes, must, must paying taxes makes me loyal, makes this, make, makes everything all right. They're not, they're not worried about like, uh, like a lot of people are like, I got to pay my tax, like JW, I got to pay my taxes or else I'm going to get tortured with this audit. But there's some because of the propaganda and I'm not one to jump into these propaganda type of things and overblow it. But here I got to say, that a lot, America, a lot of Americans are just like, yes, must pay taxes because they have accept that's the right thing to do. It is, it, it supports the country. It makes us stronger. Pay but even taxes. that is propaganda. Even that yeah. is propaganda because the IRS publishes stuff regularly yeah. and says, if you get paid in cash and you're an American citizen, you don't pay any tax. So if you know that you have the opportunity because you're you're doing something, you're running some store in some tourist town and people are paying a lot of uh, cash, the IRS will admit, like you can you can search for it, that they don't get on average any tax out of people that are primarily paid in cash. So the propaganda doesn't actually work. But if you're already paying taxes and you're forced into it and, you know, what are you going to say? Like uh, you might you might as well say that it's not so bad if it's already taken out of your paycheck. Right. But right. we know empirically if given the opportunity, the average American pays zero tax, just like the average Grecian, the average Indian. It's all a system of fear and intimidation. And, uh, you know, I don't know that that's, that's the end of my rant on that topic. All right. All right. Yeah. We got, we all Bitcoin people get into Bitcoin. <laughs> all right. Let's, let's get into the, the Yenta, the gossip part of this show real quick. BTC Benny, uh, talk about uh, Mark Cuban. I couldn't believe it. He says Bitcoin <laughs> could be hacked. I mean, what, what, where, where is this? What is he? I can't believe he said that one line. Like, is he that confused or is he just angry? I don't know. Uh, yeah, I mean, so it's it's ironic coming out of a guy who had the foresight to make a bunch of his money in the tech bubble of the 90s uh, to be 
dumping on the next big wave of, of interesting technology. Uh, but that said, uh, a lot of the, a lot of the stuff that he recently said seemed to be FUD and, and just not correct. So part of it, he was saying, uh, it's too, it's too difficult to use, but in the same breath, uh, his team, the Dallas Mavericks accepts Bitcoin. And he, even in a, another interview said that they used to accept it, but then people didn't use it. But then the, the methods with which people could pay got easier so then they brought it back so that people could utilize it. He also said it will never be a reliable, uh, there's no chance it will ever be a reliable currency. And yet again, he accepts it as currency to for his team. So it just seems like a lot of the stuff that he's saying doesn't quite line up. And to his point that it's difficult to use, um, is there a learning curve? Absolutely. There was with the, the internet. And look at us all now streaming a live show with the four of us uh, with a, an audience that is currently taking it in. Um, but he's just this fact that he said that it got easier. And so they re-added it means that it's not static. It continues to evolve and grow. And for him to not see that is a tad ridiculous. I, I just think that he's very focused on the now. He wants to see that this is a a globally used currency by everybody. And he's not really kind of zooming out and seeing the bigger picture is, is how it comes across to me. But uh, I don't know. I'm curious to hear what you guys think about this. You guys, any, any thoughts on him? I, uh, so I know a little bit about Mark Cuban cause uh, I think he's, uh, uh, you know, that show that he's got and everything. He's so, he's such a popular business figure. Um, so I, I do know a little bit about him. And one of the inter interesting things is, you know, he's actually, he's famous for bringing radio onto the internet. So, um, you know, a lot of people, you know, they, they've coded things and he just literally said, let's put radio on the internet. So it's kind of, it's kind of uh, cool that he was able to sell a company broadcast.com that was literally radio on the internet for six and a half billion dollars during the dot-com boom. The other interesting part of that story is he had one and a half billion dollars of that or $1.4 billion of that in Yahoo stock. So he was worried that we're in the middle of the dot-com bubble. This is not real money. So Yahoo stock is not a good currency and I need to get out of it. So he set up a hedge with Goldman Sachs so that if the price of Yahoo stock went down, he would actually, he, the hedge would increase in value. And so uh, it would cancel out and he would be able to preserve the value of that depreciating currency of Yahoo uh, stock. And I think that it's kind of rich coming from him to say that Bitcoin's not going to be something or there's no use case or it needs to be spent day to day because when he needed to protect $1.4 billion, he found a way to protect it. And I think in a similar way, there's a lot of people out there who don't have access to, you know, real estate in different countries or, you know, Swiss bank accounts. And they're sitting there thinking like, I'm not sure I trust the current financial system and I want to hedge my bets a little bit. And Bitcoin is just, it's so it's so popular now and it's such an option that um, there's an entire uh, kind of spectrum of people who don't have access to that stuff that's only available to millionaires. They don't have access to Goldman Sachs, but they need to hedge their bets. And so what are they gonna do? The option becomes Bitcoin. Such It's so popular throughout the mainstream media. Um, you know, Famous athletes, are they accept it as currency. And so it's just becoming popularized and it's gonna become the new way that if you have a windfall of cash, the first place you should park it throw some in Bitcoin and, and kind of, you know, get off zero. Yeah. So I, I think uh, that, yeah, that's kind of my take that I, I, I really just don't believe him. 
<laughs> pal matt light button i i i, I like that take okay jw any any takes on uh mark cuban or uh, yeah i mean i've worked with guys like mark cuban and uh, i think a lot of people overestimate how smart these guys are um they're you know i'm not saying that they're lazy or that they're dumb they're certainly neither of those things but a lot of a lot of the skill set that you need at that level is political um you gotta you know it's a little bit of right place right time it's a little bit political um, if you've worked with guys like this, you know that they're not all that sharp technically, right? Like they're, they're, they're not technical geniuses. Well, how did he make money? He put radio on the internet. I guarantee you there were thousands of people that were like, yeah, that's really stupid. We're obviously going to have radio on the internet, right? Like this is, but right place, right time, dot com bubble. You could put anything on the internet for a little while there and get crazy valuations. Um, and I'm, I'm not trying to take anything away from him. I'm just saying it doesn't surprise me that he doesn't get it. He's got a ton of money. He's got a ton of stuff going on. He's not as bright and as technically competent as a lot of people would think. Um, and I'm sure, you know, even though he's talking trash on Twitter, he has not taken the time to research monetary history for 25 minutes. So I'm not shocked. All right. All right, dudes, we have reached uh, the end of the show here. And I want to hear from all of the guests, uh, their conclusionary remarks, any stories they want to bring up, anything they want to promote. Uh, so we'll start with uh, Jeet. Yeah, um, so super pumped uh, about this conversation. I think the key takeaways were that get smarter about you know being digital online and the kind of safety and stuff that you need, and also that a lot of this. Uh, the, the other thing for me was just the war on cash and how there's a there's a there's a gradient of technical people versus non-technical, and a lot of the stuff that doesn't necessarily impact us and we're safe from is a lot of non-technical people that it impacts. So um, those were just my two key takeaways. The other cool thing I want to point out is um, there was a, a recent election in the UK where the uh, pro-Brexit party, uh, that the party that supported Brexit, um, had kind of a really uh, strong results. And the reason that I think that's interesting is because uh, outside of the United States, the European Union is like the second strongest currency or the safest kind of jurisdiction. And when um, Brexit actually happens and Britain exits the European Union, it kind of is going to start off a chain reaction of then Scotland is going to want to exit Britain and join the UK. There's countries in um, the EU that want to get out. So it's, it's you know, places like Catalonia. There's parts of uh, Italy that haven't been independent or haven't been dependent for that long. Um, different countries that have like breakaway movements. And all of a sudden, the project of the European Union and the euro currency is going to start to look less and less likely to last a long time. And so when people start to think about how do they hedge their risk from that, Bitcoin is going to become an option. So that's a recent kind of more political event that happened. But the the, the long-term takeaway effects of that is these like political projects that um, technocrats are putting together are not going to last a long time. This thing only lasted 40 years, and it involved an enormous amount of effort, and it's completely starting to fail. So it's very exciting times for people who are interested in uh, smaller levels of sovereignty than that. All right, good take on uh, Brexit and the European situation, tying it into uh, to Bitcoin. Uh, JW, your your thoughts, your conclusionary thoughts on, or anything you want to add, anything? Yeah, actually, I'll I'll just say that um, check out that uh, mathbot.com. That's that's my main project. I've stepped away from that for I don't know the last couple months as I've been trying to to work on yetycold.com, but we're we're back at it. We're working on it. 
Um, if you are in a situation where you want to move your cold storage to Bitcoin Core, which I highly recommend for all, a lot of the reasons that we talked about and some of them that we didn't, um, yeticold.com is my new uh, site. It's basically uh, like a thin Python script that will help you set up Bitcoin Core and enable you know, QR codes. It's, it does as little as possible and lets Bitcoin Core do the rest. Um, we're in beta now, so if you guys can screw around with it, test it, uh, you know, give me feedback, um, find bugs, that would be awesome. Um, and uh, yeah, other than that, just stay safe. It's going to be an interesting year. All right. Interesting decade on the way here. All right. Benny, you got the final word here. Yeah, I, I mean, I really enjoyed combo with everybody. Thanks for uh, thanks for being awesome. Um, but uh, I I guess my general sentiment right now, I really I really like where we are at in the space in general right now. It kind of feels like the calm before the storm again. It's very reminiscent of the late 2015, early 2016, where we've just seen a bunch of great crap built out that was much needed uh but you know the btc penny you know oh yeah yeah, the, yeah sorry there's you know we're, we're pre-having there's still like fud in the air there's a lot of saltiness it it very much seems beckons back to that time to me um and i'm excited to see how things progress uh especially post having and and um, if we do get another mania in the, the year following that, how how much more resilient and robust Bitcoin is to handle new people. So I guess, I guess time will tell, but uh, I'm excited to see what the next couple of years hold. All right. That's a great way to conclude the show. We're entering that golden age decade. But yeah, I was nodding my head. This reminds me a lot of the end of 2015 also. So, okay, dudes, we do This Week in Bitcoin every Friday, and we're live again, and we've got three guests again. So, hey, we'll be back next Friday. Remember, I do a new show here every single day. So follow me on Twitter at TechBalt. Come to this channel, Bitcoin Meister, every day you want to. Uh, DisruptMeister.com. Uh, what else? Oh, yeah, Saturday, that's tomorrow, will be uh, the Beyond Bitcoin show as usual. So thank you, guests. You all rocked the world. Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Have a great Friday. I'm Adam Meister, the Bitcoin Meister, Disrupt Meister. Remember, subscribe to the channel, like the video, share the video, pound that like button, and bang that bell button. Take care, everyone. Thanks a lot again. See ya. All right. This is Trace Mayer, and you're listening to Adam Meister, the Bitcoin Meister. Anyways, this is a public service announcement about the annual celebration of Proof of Keys. That's where the entire community withdraws all their Bitcoins to addresses where they hold the private keys and run a full node. So visit ProofofKeys.com to learn more about why and how you should participate. And please make a small change to your Twitter handle to show your support. Thanks.